Well, welcome. My name is Jonathan, and I get to serve as a pastor of Trinity. Welcome to you if this is new to you, if church is new to you, or a special welcome to you if Trinity is home. We miss all of you. We look forward to sharing more about getting back, reopening church. Uh, but in this week, our attention has certainly gone in a different direction. Uh, the world has literally changed right in front of us this week. There are not many things that can take a global pandemic and make it seem as if it is a non-factor. But in our world at this moment, racism is way out front. And this has been a, a week that we will always remember. It'll be a season that we remember for the rest of our lives as we come together and we think about the issues of racism that are in front of us. For some people, this has been a week unlike any other in your lifetime. For other folks, this is just a repeat, a sad reminder that history has not actually changed that much as it relates to race and racism. This has been a sobering week of watching and learning and listening to the voices of the black community, grieving for the loss of another life, a black life, at the hands of a white policeman. And as a pastor of this church, I want to stand and say that we believe that black lives do matter. And that's not a political statement at all. What that is, is it's a statement of truth. And we stand in solidarity with the black community in this moment. Men and women with voices who are saying, this is not right. This is not fair. This has gone on for far too long. Is anyone listening? Is anyone willing to step up and to love and to help? This is not the America that we believe in. This is the America that we unfortunately currently live in. But this is not what we stand for. Is there a different way forward? And we believe there is. And we're in a unique series as a church right now, going through the upside-down characteristics of Jesus' teaching through the Sermon on the Mount. We've entitled this series, Unlearning, and we still have a lot of unlearning to do. So I'm going to read for us, set it up a little bit, a little bit more, and take you into Matthew 6, 5 through 15. This is going to be part two of the Lord's Prayer. We looked at part one last week, the first three petitions. We're going to look at the second three petitions today. They line up really significantly with the moment that we're in. So I'm excited that the Lord has led us here. So let me read from Matthew 6, 5 through 15. Again, this is Jesus preaching in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others' trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others' trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses." As we have been saying, Christianity's answer is yes. There is a different and a new and a distinct way forward. Jesus's answer is yes. And in fact, one of the clearest places in Scripture that you can go to find the mental roadmap that Jesus wants to lay out for his followers 
is in fact right here in the Sermon on the Mount. What I want you to see and I want you to feel, especially if you're new to Christianity peeking in, is I want you to see and believe that the Bible isn't simply an ancient book for ancient peoples. See, it's a modern living book for every people. It's a book for every social moment that human history has ever encountered, and it's a book that unveils the reality behind every human heart and what God intends to do about it. I'd love to show you how this works just as we have begun going through this series in the Sermon on the Mount. I want to take you back to the beginning for just a moment. Where we began this series was, was, was in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus begins this Sermon on the Mount. He's got this diverse crowd in front of him. Some people are followers. Some people are trying to figure out if they want to follow him. Some are skeptical. Some want a free lunch. People are there for all different sorts of reasons. But Jesus begins to unpack the dynamic of this unique way forward called the kingdom of God. And listen to how he began. It says, And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right there, first word, first phrase, people would have been like, say it again? What does that even mean? Blessed are the poor in spirit. No, no, Jesus, you got this wrong. Blessed are the rich. Blessed are the power brokers. Blessed are those way out front. He goes, no, I'm a different sort of king. And there's a different way forward. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He keeps going. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Does that sound like the moment we're in? See, the Beatitudes is a, is a unique introduction to a unique man, a unique perspective and a very strange kingdom called the kingdom of God. From the Beatitudes, the beginning of it, he goes into this conversation around salt and light. He talks about you got to be distinct. You've got to be different. The world needs to see the upside downness. You have to help people unlearn the old ways of living. Salt and light. And then he goes into all these conversations that we've covered over the past five, six, seven weeks around anger, how to think about anger differently. Then he talks about real love and counterfeit versions of love. He talks about retaliation. You have heard that it was said. There's all this unlearning that has to happen. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, love even your enemies. There's a whole section on what that sort of love looks like. And then he talks about giving to those in need. And then that leads us to this incredible section where he teaches his disciples to pray. Love your enemies, anger, real love, retaliation, being different, looking for a new way forward. All of that jam-packed into the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's exactly what we need to hear. Not just as followers of Jesus, but prayerfully as a society that is looking for that new way forward. As Mark Sayers would put it, everyone's looking for the kingdom without the king. Did you hear that? Everyone's looking for the kingdom without the king. Secular society wants everything that Jesus has to offer without Jesus being part of the conversation. Our nation is crying out for transformation and change and justice, and that's the right cry. But it's only found in Jesus, this non-white, Middle Eastern Savior of the world who is the new way forward, not just points to it, but he actually is. 
So I'm going to take you through four different movements today from the second half of the Lord's Prayer. Number one, we're going to see that the Lord's Prayer reveals the true heart of God. Number two, it establishes mutuality. Number three, it levels the playing field. And number four, it exposes and defeats our moral enemies. So the Lord's Prayer reveals the heart of God, establishes mutuality, levels the playing field, and exposes and defeats our moral enemy. So let me take you to part one, which is that it reveals the heart of God. Let's look at verse 9 again and then verse 11. In verse 9, we read what we looked at last week. We spent time on this last week. Our Father in heaven. This is how the prayer begins. But then in verse 11, we get these specific petitions. The first is, Our Father, give us today our daily bread. And the first thing I want you to feel from this text is this. There are literally billions of people in this world, billions of people, which means billions of daily little requests coming at God. Why does God want us to come to him in prayer like that every day asking for daily bread? Why wouldn't God just give us what we need and then send us on our way? I mean, if I were God, I'd probably set up a different system. I wouldn't want to get down into the dirt, into the details of people's lives. I'd go, man, I hear a request for world peace. I'm God. I'm in on that. But the daily requests from billions of people for daily bread, for their daily necessities, I'm not so in on that. See, but as Jesus teaches his followers to pray, he says, pray each day for the needs of that day. How come? I'd like to propose the answer is this, that God doesn't just love you, but that God actually likes you. We know that there's a difference between the two of them. See, within the concept of deism, we believe that God is up there. He's in the stars. There's this God who's set things in motion, but he's not personal. He's not involved. But within the, within the perspective of Christianity, there is a God who exists. He's put all of it into, emo, into motion, but he loves us and he's personal. He doesn't just love you. He actually likes you. He views you as the most intricate and most significant part of his creation. Now, he loves the nuances of how you are designed. He loves your personality. He loves your quirks. He loves the little subtle things about you. He looks on you with such delight, such admiration. He looks at you as if you were the apple of his eye. Go back and read Psalm 17, 8 and Proverbs 7, 2. He says, there's no one like you. I don't just love you. I actually like you. I'd like to spend time with you every single day. God is not a codependent parent. He doesn't need to be needed. See, but God knows that the safest place for you to find yourself in in a regular place, in a regular space, is with Him in daily dependence every single day. He likes you so much that He wants to see you every single day. Now, most of you have been working at home like me for the past two-plus months. And one of the things that I was worried about was setting up an office in my home, realizing that kids are no longer at school. Kids are going to be coming in. They've got things to say. They've got requests to make. But what I didn't understand, I didn't realize, and I've come to see is that maybe the favorite part of my day is where my little kids creep into the room, some through the side door, some through this front door to the office. There's a bathroom on the side. They love to kind of sneak in in different ways. And they come in and they kind of tap on my shoulder. They knock on the door or a marble comes flying under the door. And we have a little exchange back and forth. Those have become the favorite part of my day, the little interruptions. 
And the reason they're so sweet is because I actually don't just love my children, I like my children. I like to be with them. Now, you can have them sometimes, but most of the time, I really, really like to be with them. My oldest, Mason, he's turning uh, 11 at the end of the summer. It's hard to believe that I've got a 10 and a half year old. Um, he loves to talk about college. He loves to talk about leaving and going to college. He's so intrigued by the stories that I've told. Ask me another time about all the stories I've told him about who I used to be and how I used to live. But he is intrigued by leaving home and going and spending uh, time living in a dorm, hanging out with his buddies. He loves to ask the questions about college and leaving and what it's going to be like. And on one hand, I'm thrilled for him to fly, leave the nest, go, have an immense time. College are some of the most fun years that we've had if you've had the opportunity to go. But at the exact same time, there's also a deep sadness for me that goes, man, I've got seven and a half years left with him before he's gone. And the reason I feel like that is because I don't just love my son, but I actually like being with him. And this is what the scriptures are teaching us about who God is. And some of you need to really hear that today. Do you believe that God doesn't just love you generically, but that he likes you? personally. Wrestle with that. Think about that deeply because it can start to change everything. So part one, the Lord's Prayer reveals the heart of God. And part two, it establishes mutuality. It establishes mutuality. Let's look at this again. Our Father, we read at the beginning of that prayer, give us this day our daily bread. In the ancient Near East, a day's pay generally purchased the day's food, right? So for the average blue-collar worker, which was the overwhelming majority of people, you worked one day so that you would have enough to be able to pay for food or necessities the next day. If you did not work one day, most likely you were not going to be able to afford food the next. People had a very difficult time saving. They basically had wages for a day. So when Jesus starts talking about praying for your daily bread, this was not rhetoric for them. This was their daily reality. And part of the trouble that I think that we bump into, I'm going to say this tongue in cheek, is that we shop at Costco. <laughs> we shop at Costco. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that we don't need bread every day. And we are all stocked up. We don't need toilet paper for the next six months because we have bought literally every single roll that we could find. Some of you are savvy and you find that like unique Chinese distributor that had these large amounts of toilet paper in bulk. You have got enough toilet paper for the next year. You found it. So when it comes to the concept of daily needs, daily bread, daily necessities, we don't resonate with that anymore. The ancient listener got this, but we in the West, because of all the affluence and because of all the comforts that we have been given, when we talk about daily bread, we go, Jesus, you know what? That doesn't make sense to me. I don't need bread tomorrow or the next day or the next day. I've essentially got everything that I need. And so shopping at Costco or Vons or our family favorite Target is a symbol of our times and possibly a symbol of our hearts. So many of us in the West, we don't pray for daily bread because we don't actually need it. See, we don't actually need it. We've got a month's supply of everything that we need and now we are self-sufficient. The world may run out of toilet paper, but I guarantee you that we won't. See, but this prayer is designed to spark 
mutuality across the board amongst every color and creed and culture. For those of us who put our trust and our faith in this God, we're supposed to come to him every single day. See, there's a leveling. There's a mutuality. We are together. We are part of the human family. We are supposed to lean into this God who says, I will provide for you every single day. The difficulty isn't the fact that we have affluence. The the difficulty is that we lean into our affluence for our security. And this is what the prayer starts to erode. We don't have to feel bad for having things, but we need to say that those things can easily take away from the reality that God is my father and he wants a conversation with me because he likes me and he doesn't just love me. See, everyone is supposed to come to God each day expectant and dependent. But there is a second and potentially more important aspect of this mutuality, and it contains this hidden social dimension. Here's what the great reformer, Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, wrote. He says, for all to get daily bread, listen listen closely, for all to get daily bread, there must be a thriving economy, unemployment, and a just society. Therefore, to pray, give us all the people of our land. Daily bread is to pray against wanton exploitation in business, trade, and labor, which crushes the poor and deprives them of their daily bread. In other words, when we pray for daily bread, for us, for all of us, we are praying for a just society. We are praying against injustice. We are praying for employment. We are praying that people have fair wages. We are praying that people will be able to work in a way that they can provide for their family. And maybe, just maybe, if we pray this prayer in the right way, we have to lean in and say, what if part of God's intention for those of us who have a lot more bread than others, we've got one more slice or a few more slices than those down the street who may have a different color than us. What if part of God's solution to adjust society so that people can learn to share together is that we give part of our slice to those who can't even have access to the same grocery store that we have? What if God's solution to this was that those of us who have more are actually supposed to give away? And see, this is an incredible prayer that has hugely overlooked social dimensions baked inside of it. Christians are people who are concerned that everyone gets to eat, everyone gets their daily needs met. And for those of us with more, we become part of the answer to that prayer itself, giving away what we have for the sake of somebody else. This is the way it's supposed to work, friends. This is not a savior complex. This is a biblical perspective on brotherhood and sisterhood. So the Lord's Prayer, number one, it reveals the heart of God, and number two, it establishes mutuality. We are in this together, brotherhood, sisterhood, and number three, it levels the playing field. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. I'd like to read for you from a very famous parable from Matthew chapter 18. He tells a parable of what's called and considered the unjust, the unjust worker or the unmerciful servant. Here's what we read in Matthew 18, beginning with verse 23. Again, Jesus is painting a picture of his rule and his reign in his kingdom. And he says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. 
At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and he begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and they went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Both throughout the Sermon on the Mount, and then here in this parable from Matthew 18, Jesus equates sin, he describes sin in terms of a debt, a debt that has to be paid. And he describes sin as a moral debt. When you sin, if you're married against your husband or your wife, when you treat them with contempt, when you speak to them with bitterness and anger, what you are doing is you are racking up debits into this thing called a marriage account where there's only a certain amount of love and goodwill and equity. If you continue to rack up debits, if you consider always cashing it in, there's always a debit, there's always a debt being accrued in your marriage, the reality is pretty soon there is a huge divide that has grown between you and between her, between her and between him. That's how relationships work. There's a gap that grows and there's a divide that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Marriage has to be healed through the concept of forgiveness. The debt has to be canceled. The gap has to be filled in. The question is, where does that come from? Sin created the gap is what the scriptures teach us. But only forgiveness can heal it. See, and Jesus is saying that each of us, no matter our culture, no matter our color, we're all the same. The level, the, the playing field has been completely leveled. Each one of us is viewed as a debtor. That's not language that I like. You probably don't like it either. We're all sinners. Each of us has a moral problem that cannot be fixed from the inside. We have to look outside of us. And that's what our world is doing, friends. They are looking for a solution to the problem of racism. Who and what is going to fix this moment? Is history simply going to repeat itself? And the sad answer is absolutely it will repeat itself unless Jesus comes in to transform an entire nation. Because what has to happen is the debt has to be forgiven. The issue is the growing gap. What do we do about it? The Bible calls this sin, this form of sin or this aspect of sin, he calls it a debit, he calls it a debt. And the debt has to be paid. And according to Christianity, we are all on the same playing field. We are all in need of grace. And that's why Jesus is so significant. That's why he changes the story. See, as Christians... We don't walk around like the moral police, like spirituality inspectors, assessing debt comparisons. Oh, your debt was pretty large and mine was pretty small. I can see why you need Jesus so much. No, that's the foundation of self-righteousness. That's not Christianity. 
But what Jesus is saying is that to the degree that you understand the debt of sin that you owe and that was paid on the cross, only to that degree will you be able to live out the Sermon on the Mount. Only to that degree will you be able to forgive other people. If you do not forgive, is Jesus' point, if you do not forgive, then you do not understand the gospel because the gospel is forgiveness. See, but for those of us who the Spirit of God has pricked and our heart is awakening, we do understand that according to the parable of Jesus, we owe 10,000 bags of gold, an insurmountable debt. But Jesus stepped in and he paid it for us. And the reaction ought to be mutuality, deep love, deep compassion, deep respect, because we look out at the world and we don't whitewash the colors. We see the difference, but we understand that underneath each of us is the exact same. Debtors, sinners, grace junkies, without hope, apart from Jesus. See, this prayer helps us to level the playing field. Let me take you to the last part. The Lord's Prayer reveals the heart of God. It establishes mutuality. It levels the playing field. And then fourthly and lastly, it exposes and it defeats our moral enemy. Verse 12, glance there. In verse 12, we read this. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus tells us two things here in the final part of this prayer. Number one, he tells us to pray for protection against the evil within, but he also tells us to pray for the evil and against the evil without. In other words, the evil that resides in our heart and the evil that resides out there in the world. When Jesus instructs his disciples to pray, lead us not into, tempta into temptation, he's not praying against temptation itself. Remember, Jesus was tempted. Jesus was without sin. The issue isn't the temptation, but what Jesus is praying against is actually the entering into the temptation. It's the consideration of it. Testing, on the one hand, testing challenges us. Testing refines us. But what Jesus is praying for is that his disciples would not step into the temptation that comes their way. Temptation is anything that lures and encourages and entices you to loosen your grip on God and to hold on to something else. Did you hear that? Temptation is anything that threatens to decenter God. It is anything that says to your heart, let go of God. Hold on to me. I'll make you happier than he ever could. And see, Jesus knows that the human heart wants what it wants, even when what it wants is actually a lie. And Jesus tells us, pray against that. Invite the Holy Spirit in so that you don't enter into the lie that's coming at your heart that says, don't trust God, let go. But see, but this prayer also defends us from the evil out there and not just the evil within. And yes, it has become immensely taboo to talk about a personalized force for evil, to be able to name a devil, to be able to say the word Satan. Most people are outside of Christianity lean in and go, how naive, how outdated. But friends, maybe, maybe now more than ever, it doesn't take much to see that the evil one is real and that he has an agenda. 
And his agenda looks like racism and hatred and violence and segregation and disunity and partisan politics and broken families and a lack of listening and a lack of caring and self-defending and apathy and ignorance. As Christians, we believe in the reality of a personalized enemy called the devil because Jesus believed in the reality of a personalized enemy called the devil. And this devil has an agenda. And listen closely right now. That agenda is to entice you with lies that look like light. But then what the enemy loves to do is to turn out the light on you so that your soul can rot in the sin and the shame and the guilt of the lie that you bought. That's what he wants to do. Helmut Thielick, hope I said that right, a theologian, he says, there is a dark, mysterious, spellbinding figure at work. Behind the temptations stands the tempter. Behind the lie stands the liar. Behind all the death and bloodshed stands the murderer from the beginning. But the reality is, as I conclude, the reality is our enemy will not win. He will most certainly lose. How come? Because, as this prayer said at the very beginning, God is now our Father. See, that means that we are part of a family where there was once a massive divide, a massive debt, a massive gap, but something in the storyline has changed that now we get to call this God Father, which means as you take a step back and then you zoom back in, you go, the gospel is what changes the storyline. Jesus is the only true brother who's come in to heal and to redeem and to forgive and to mend parties. And now we actually get to pray this prayer by saying, my father. And when we say my father, we know that things have been fixed. Redemption has actually happened. We're going to be brought back into a storyline that changes everything. To be able to say our father is the confidence that we need to know that racism will not win the day, hatred will not win the day, but Jesus will win the day, compassion will win the day, love will win the day, and it finds its source in our God. Jesus, friends, is the new way forward. And I want us to pray as Jesus taught us to pray. And I want us to become advocates, and I want us to be educated, and I want us to repent, and I want us to hit our knees, and I want us to be salt and light, change agents. Those aren't my desires. Those are God's desires. I just want to know what He wants so we can do it. And I want to be a pastor who leads you in that, in that way. So let's conclude today as we wrap up part two of the Lord's Prayer. I will lead us, and I want you to listen, that we will pray that His kingdom will come and I will break in. And he'll do what he promises. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this incredible prayer. We thank you that you love us. We thank you for the promises of redemption. We thank you for the goodness and the grace and the compassion that we find in the heartbeat of God. We want to know the real heart of God so we can follow it. So many of us have misinterpretations of who God is. I pray you'd redeem those. I pray you'd redefine those. And I pray that we would move forward into this social moment with the gospel in a way that fights against hate with compassion, that loves our enemy, that turns the other cheek, that doesn't retaliate, 
but moves forward peacefully like Jesus. And so we conclude this little two-part series by praying together, the prayer that you taught us, saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come right here, right now. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, for we are starving and we are hungry and we need you. And forgive us our debts, for they are many, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but lead us toward right living, toward righteousness, harmony, and peace. And deliver us from the evil one. We pray this in Jesus' profound and healing name. Amen.